Welcome to Role Playing History, a podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 57 The World of Darkness, Part 3. All right, so I've gotten a few tweets and emails asking why I decided to split the World of Darkness into three episodes, and more to the point, why am I running all three in a row instead of taking a break for another topic? Look, I fully admit that I could have done it that way, but I felt it'd be best to tell a complete story by just covering all of these games consecutively. So, that meant three shows in a row. Don't worry, I've got a new topic for next week, and we'll get back into our one-show, one-topic format. But this week, let's crank up the tour bus and finish our look at the World of Darkness. Well, technically, we're touring the Chronicles of Darkness. Let's kick off the tour with Vampire the Requiem. Designed by a team of 18 that included Justin Akili, the Weak Brothers, and Ethan Skemp, Vampire the Requiem was released on August 21st, 2004. It received a second edition, and that dropped in December of 2013. Much like Vampire the Masquerade, the vampires in Requiem live in a modern-day Earth, and they reside in large cities. The reason for that second point is that large cities are target-rich environment for creatures who need blood in order to survive. Overall, Requiem has the same levels of intrigue and vampire politics as Masquerade, however, some of the background nuts and bolts have been changed. Just like in Masquerade, vampires, or kindred as they're known among themselves, are brought into one of five clans when they become kindred. The five clans are Deva, these are the sexual, seductive vampires who live the decadent, almost deviant lifestyle, at least as it pertains to sexuality. Gangrel, these are the apex predators of the vampire community. They see humans only as food, and they treat them accordingly. Maquette, if you were comparing them to humans, Maquette would be the ones wearing the tinfoil hats. They are, by definition, conspiracy occultists hoarding knowledge and information. Nosferatu, these are the hideous-looking vampires you've seen in movies like Nosferatu. They are reclusive, primarily because of how they look. After all, that look is pretty damn hard to hide amongst humans. And Ventru, these are the regal vampires. They see themselves as the lords and rulers of all, including the kindred. And again, much like in Masquerade, the clans contain a number of sub-clans, which are the bloodlines individual kindred come from. Requiem also has a number of political and religious factions, which are known as Covenants. Some of them are the Carthian Movement, they're looking for the best form of government for the kindred. For the record, it's the only covenant that actually elects its leaders. The Circle of the Crone. These are pagan and neo-pagan cults and religions of the culture. The Invictus, which is also called the First Estate. These are the old-school kindred who concern themselves with material gain and power. The Lancia et Sanctum. Obviously, they trace themselves back to the Romans, and they also believe they have a role in divine providence. The Ordo Dracul, they're looking to fully understand the vampiric condition, and they want to work to improve upon it and, in the end, get beyond its limitations. For kindred, there's a term for those who don't belong to a covenant, and they don't have to, by the way. They're referred to as the unaligned. Now, getting into the mechanics of Requiem, the powers, weaknesses, and abilities of the game are pretty much the same as they are in Masquerade. They just get a bit different explanation in the new game. Now, much like in Masquerade, most of the enemies the Kindred will run into come from within their own communities. However, there are only two Covenants that are considered to be only enemies, which means they're not for players to choose. 
Belial's blood is a loose association of Satanists, demon worshippers, and other miscreants. They really don't care if they expose the existence of vampires, and they are all about spreading misery and pain. Seven is a faction of vampires dedicated to destroying the species. It's also a group without a lot of provided background, as the storyteller is encouraged to flesh it out themselves. The second edition adds a third group. Strix are vampires that were never human. They're monsters inspired by the Roman spirits of the same name. They despise the concept of humanity and seek to take over physical bodies so they can experience physical sensation. Needless to say, they're more like living shadows. Over the course of two editions of the game, 54 different supplements have been released, and the game has been critically acclaimed and has sold very well over the years. The first edition won the 2005 Gold Any Award for Best Supplement and the Silver Any for Best Interior Art. Werewolf the Forsaken is next up. Designed by Carl Bowen, Conrad Hubbard, Rick Jones, James Kiley, Matthew McFarlane, and Adam Tinworth, Werewolf the Forsaken was released on March 14, 2005. When Onyx Path Publishing got control of the entire line, a second edition with a new, larger crew of designers was released on March 4th, 2015. Unlike Vampire the Requiem, Werewolf the Forsaken was way different than its predecessor, Werewolf the Apocalypse. So let's get into it. The characters in Forsaken are known as Yuratha, who are sworn to maintain a balance and prevent ingress between the spirit and material worlds. Yuratha are territorial predators, and they feel a strong compulsion to hunt. In fact, in this game, many of them have issues containing their aggression, which makes it very difficult for them to live among humans. Also, for the record, this aggression is noticeable to humans, and it turns them off. Getting into the various societal parts of the game, while the werewolves of this game don't necessarily have to join a tribe, they do create a pack of at least three others, because of course there's strength and protection in numbers. Every pack is adopted by a totem, which is a spirit that bonds with the pack. However, if the werewolf does join a tribe, they are mandated to swear the Oath of the Moon, which is a moral guide, or harmony as it's presented in the game. Here's the oath. The wolf must hunt. The people do not murder the people. The low honor the high. The high respect the low. Respect your prey. The Yuratha shall cleave to the human. By the way, this means wolves don't mate with wolves. Do not eat the flesh of human or wolf. The herd must not know. And there are serious consequences for werewolves who've sworn the oath and break it up to and including death. So these are to be taken very seriously. All right, so I keep talking about tribes. Let's take a look at those. Blood Talons. They promote the warrior and wolf aspects of the Yuratha, and their favorite prey are other werewolves. Bone Shadows. They are occultists and are trying to reestablish relations with the spirit courts. Their favorite prey are spirits. Hunters in Darkness. They are considered the protectors of loci, which are the spiritual centers of the world. Their favorite prey are the hosts. Iron Masters. They embrace change and new ideas. They are closer to humanity than the others. Their favorite prey are humans, as well as the creators that hide among them. Let that sink in for a minute. Storm Lords. They want to lead all Yuratha through strength and noble example. Their favorite prey are material objects and creatures that have been possessed by spirits. From a biological perspective, the Yuratha are both physical and spiritual, and they can use the energy of the spirits, also called essence, to activate their gifts, which are supernatural powers. Fetishes, which are supernatural tools, change their form or accelerate their healing. They heal very fast, sometimes in seconds, and can, in theory anyway, regrow limbs and organs, though that takes a lot of effort. 
Silver, by the way, is a big weakness of the Uratha, and wounds from silver are slow to heal and require a lot more effort. Uratha have a much faster metabolism than humans and need a lot more food. The diet of a Uratha depends on preference. Some are meat eaters, but many are vegetarians. While we're on the discussion of biology, let's look at forms. Every Uratha can, at will, change into one of five distinct forms. Hishu, that's human form. Dalu, near human form, bigger, hairier, and stronger. Gauru, wolfman, pretty much the same as in Apocalypse. Urshul, near wolf, that's a three to five foot tall wolf. Urhan, wolf form, that's the werewolf form. I want to step back into society for a minute since I wandered off into biology and lay out the auspices in the game. Every Uratha has one and they're tied to one of the five phases of the moon. Rahu, full moon. These are warriors of all kind. Kahalath, gibbous moon. Seers, storytellers, lore keepers. Elidolph, half moon. Diplomats to the spirit courts, judges, and arbiters. Ithior, crescent moon. Occultists and keepers of spirit lore and rituals. And Eraka, new moon. Scouts, spies, and trackers. For the record, each of these five is divided further, and those divisions are called aspects. More information on those is detailed in the books. Of course, you can't have protagonists without antagonists, and this game's got a lot of them. Spirits, the pure, which are werewolves descended from those who chose not to rise up and slay Father Wolf. Needless to say, they're not going to have warm and fuzzy feelings for the characters. The hosts, hybrid of spirit and flesh. Again, they're weird, supernatural, and do not like werewolves. The Itagram, these are spirits that represent concepts that existed before the world was fully formed. Needless to say, their goals are not the same as the characters. The Balehounds, these are werewolves who swear by the seven deadly sins. May I say more? Humans, other supernaturals. I mean, after all, these are the Chronicles of Darkness. Nineteen supplements were produced for the two editions of The Forsaken, and they sold fairly well, as well as got decent reviews. Mage the Awakening was the mage entry into the Chronicle of Darkness. It got a pre-release sale at Gen Con from August 18th to 21st of 2005, before being officially released on August 29th of 2005. Designed by Bill Bridges and Conrad Hubbard, there's an interesting nugget about the release of this book. It was originally supposed to be released around August 4th, but Bridges and Hubbard wanted to make sure the system was as perfect as it could be, and added 80 more pages to the book before White Wolf finally deemed it ready for release. Onyx Path Publishing handled the second edition, also from Bridges and Hubbard, and released it on May 4th, 2016. The history and background of the world in The Awakening is just as full and enriched as in the other books we've covered over the past few weeks. But for this book, it also veers away from much of the background from the original. Again, I would normally cover all of this, but with the stack of books we're trying to get in this week, we just don't have the time. So just pick up a PDF and check it out. But I'm not going to short you on the character stuff. I promise. Mages in this game become mages through what's called the Awakening, thus the name of the game. The Awakening comes in one of two major ways, typically. One of them is called the Mystery Play, which is when the mages' senses blur the real world and the magical symbolism of their awakening. The other is the Astral Journey, which takes place entirely in a dreamscape. Regardless of which one they take, it ends with the mage's journey to the tower that will be theirs, and them inscribing their name on it. Of course, your mage will need a path of magic. Mage the Awakening has five of them. And Canthus, these are enchanters who work with luck, intuition, and destiny. Mastigos, these are warlocks who work with perception and inner demons. Moros, necromancers working with death, mortality, and material things. Obrimos, 
theurgists, working with the divine and mundane energies of the world, and thyrsus. These are shamans. They work with all aspects of the natural world. And what would a magic-based game be without orders? There are five of them, though your mage doesn't have to join one. The Adamantine Arrow, spiritual warriors and masters of conflict. Guardians of the Veil, spies and conspirators. The Mysterium, they are all about magical lore and the gathering of magical artifacts. The Silver Ladder, these are all about ruling, guiding, and reshaping the world. The Free Council, these are more modern mages and they want to create new forms of magic. As you might expect, these orders are basically competing with each other, which is one of the tensions in the game. The basics of magic are the same as in the World of Darkness version of Mage, and covert and vulgar spells are transferred over to this version as well. I do need to note, though, that they get a fresh coat of paint with new definitions and examples. Alright, so you know me. I gotta lay out the antagonists of the game. I mean, we need to know who the bad guys are, right? Seers of the Throne. They've sworn service to the Exarchs, who they believe is a man-made god. The Banishers, they're set on destroying other mages. The Mad, I think that name is self-explanatory. The Akamoth, the Gulmoth, these are supernatural beings. The Celesti, these are mortal mages who serve and or worship the Abyss. Goetic Demons, these are formed by mages calling forth the vices in their mind into a physical form. Tremere Liches, liches who consume the souls of others in exchange for immortality and power. And Witch Hunters. Again, I think the name explains it. Through two editions of Mage the Awakening, 33 supplements were produced and sales were pretty decent for the entire line. Alright, while many of the books in the Chronicles of Darkness are new versions of games released in the world of darkness, there were some new game lines that came out as well. Promethean the Created was one of them. Designed by Bill Bridges and Conrad Hubbard, the first edition was released by White Wolf Publishing on August 11, 2006. On August 3rd, 2016, Onyx Path Publishing released the second edition to the world. Inspired by the classic tales of Frankenstein's monster, the Gollum, and other monster types in this genre, characters in Promethean are created by dismembering and reassembling from either a single human corpse or by taking parts from multiple corpses. The result is a human body, which is then animated with the divine fire known as Pyros. This creature is then known as a Promethean. Now, if you followed my description closely, you may have noticed that Prometheans do not have a soul. That's part of their goal in life, actually, achieving humanity. For the most part, a Promethean is a blank slate. However, it has been noted that most of them have full knowledge of any languages the body or bodies spoke in life. Don't be confused, though. Prometheans are literally walking corpses. They are not human in any form or term that we would use to recognize this. And there's a major downside to that. Okay, I know there's more than one downside, but there's one I really wanted to point out here. When a Promethean spends enough time around humans, the humans begin to suffer from what's called disquiet. What that means is that they realize something about the Promethean is off or wrong. That leads to distrust, which leads to fear, which leads to suffering, which is the path to the dark side of the Force. Thank you, Master Yoda. Yeah, okay, I could keep running down the rabbit hole of what a Promethean needs to do to achieve humanity, but we've got more games to cover. So with that in mind, let's get into the nuts and bolts of this game. When created, each Promethean takes on the traits of the progenitor, who was the first of their kind. These traits are known as lineages. They are Frankensteins, also called the Wretched. This pretty much follows everything we know about the Frankenstein story. Galatides, also called Muses. They're known for their beauty and their want of companionship. Osirens, also called Nepri. They see themselves as children of God and they carry themselves as such. 
Tammuz, called golems in the first edition and the named in the second. So they're created by being buried after they get the divine fire. Once they wake up, then they have to claw themselves out. Ulgun, also called Riven, their base is shamanism. Unfleshed, also called manufactured. These are mechanical inventions with illusionary magic used to make them appear humid. Extempor, also called Matchless. These are one-of-a-kind Prometheans formed by circumstance or accident, and they were added in 2nd edition. Once they pick up their lineage, the Promethean starts the journey towards mortality. To do that, they have to dedicate themselves towards a refinement. Refinements are equal parts philosophy and alchemical regimens. There are two types of refinements, simple and complex. The simple refinements are Arum, the refinement of gold or mortality, Cuprum, the refinement of iron or self. Ferrum, refinement of iron or corpus. We've discussed corpus in prior games, so I'll refer you back to last week's episode. Plumbum, refinement of lead or surce. Stanum, refinement of tin or torment. The complex refinements are Aes, refinement of bronze or aid. Argentum, refinement of silver or mystery. Cobalus, refinement of cobalt or impurity. Mercurius, refinement of quicksilver or pyros. Phosphorum, refinement of phosphorus or ephemerality. Now, obviously, the text goes way deep into all of these, and my brief words don't do them justice. If you check out the text, the descriptions are way cooler and explain why the Promethean has chosen the path they've chosen. Another thing that a Promethean has to do on the path towards mortality is to create another Promethean of their line. Of course, sometimes that has to be done quickly, and there's a very long list of things that can go wrong when that happens. Nine different supplements were released over the two editions, and it was fairly well-reviewed and had decent sales. Going back to what I've referred to as a new coat of paint on an older idea, Changeling appears again in the Chronicles of Darkness. Changeling The Lost, designed by Ethan Skemp, was released by White Wolf Publishing on August 16th, 2007, which was just before Gen Con, White Wolf's favorite place to release products in this line. Changeling the Lost also got a second edition, also designed by Ethan Skemp. It was released in January of 2019. The basics of the game are very much the same as the World of Darkness version. However, there were some changes made. First off, the concept of Changelings was altered. Now, Changelings are ordinary humans who were kidnapped by the Fae and taken as slaves to their world. The characters in-game figured out how to escape, struggle through the barrier, known as the Hedge, separating Fauri from the Earth, and are now trying to rediscover the world of their birth while dealing with all the changes they've had. Oh yeah, and they're also trying like hell to avoid being recaptured. The overall themes of Changeling the Lost are the pain of loss, the quest for identity, and the nature of human existence. In short... The characters were taken at whatever age they were, taken to an alien realm, and held hostage. While there, they were tortured and forced to work as slaves for their fey masters. On top of all of that, they had a physical and supernatural metamorphosis. I want to make it even better. Time passes differently in the fey realm than on Earth. So when the characters try to get back to their lives, they're either too young or too old to pick up where they left off. In some cases, that means that everyone they knew and loved is gone, and in other cases, it means they just can no longer associate with those they knew and loved, since it's obviously they're no longer completely human. Several of the sources I tapped for this show pointed out that the characters of Changeling the Lost are way better nuanced than in any other World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness game. And much like in the previous version of Changeling, each character possesses a kith, is part of a court, and has entitlements. I listed most of those in last week's episode, and while they have been a bit adjusted, they're basically the same. 
Something new for this version is that changelings also have seemings. There are six of them. Beasts, these are changelings that share qualities with animals. Darklings, these changelings take on aspects of fear and shadow. Elementals, they're one with nature. Fairists, these changelings are definitely fey beautiful. Ogres, these are the ultraviolet changelings. And wizened, these wound up being the figure of whatever profession they had when serving their fey masters. And yes, they had a profession, you can look it up. We know by now I'm big on antagonists, and this game is chock full of them. True Fey, Hobgoblins, Mad Changelings, and of course, the other beings inside the Chronicles of Darkness. That doesn't even include other members of Changeling Society. 18 supplements have been released over the course of the two editions, and there's still new stuff dropping for the second edition to this day. Changeling the Lost has been way better reviewed than Changeling the Dreaming. In fact, in 2008, it won Gold Any Awards for Product of the Year, Best Interior Art, Best Production Values, and Best Writing. Sales have also been consistent, which means Changeling will be around for quite some time. Next up on the tour of Chronicles of Darkness is, uh, well, this version of Hunter. Titled Hunter the Vigil, it was designed by Justin Akili, Rich Thomas, and Chuck Wendig, and was released during White Wolf's favorite time of year, August 14, 2008. Onyx Path Publishing handled the production of the second edition, which released on March 2, 2022. Monica Valentinelli was the lead designer for second edition. Much as it was with the World of Darkness version of Hunter, this version pits the Hunters against the Supernatural, and the Hunters are considerable underdogs. What's new for the Vigil is the Vigil itself. This is a morality code taken by hunters that will eventually erode their humanity. Another new feature is that there are three times of gameplay. One type has the group of hunters, known as a cell, having little to no support in their actions. Another type has the cell having support of a larger corporation, known as a compact. The final one has the hunters at the mercy of large groups called conspiracies, which in many cases control governments. Needless to say, the more help the hunters get, the less freedom they have. First edition got 15 supplements for it, and while second edition was just released, there are two supplements on the way in the near future. It should be noted that Hunter the Vigil was supposed to be a limited release. However, it was so well-reviewed and sold so well, it was allowed to expand as well as get a second edition. One negative from the reviews is that several reviewers thought the writing was a bit too uneven, when it comes to gameplay, though, everybody seems to have loved it. Of course, with a second edition having been released earlier this year, Hunter the Vigil should be available at your friendly local game shop. Next up on our tour is another new game for this line. Geist, the Sin Eaters, was designed by Ethan Skemp and published by White Wolf Publishing in August of 2009. Like every other book in this line, Onyx Path Publishing gave it a second edition, which was released on April 20th, 2020. The basics of Geist is that the characters are basically spirits that were once ghosts but have given up their mortal identity. Instead, they've become what are known as Sin Eaters. Sin Eaters have died and returned to the world of the living. However, they're not undead. What they are are bound to the fundamental forces of death. That comes from the fact that the character has made a deal with the Geist, or the embodiment of death, who brought them back to life. So the Geist joins with the human, and the human's in control. Sort of. The Sin Eater can see and interact with the Shades of the Dead, and they now have to decide what they're going to do with their new lease on life. Every Sin Eater has a threshold, which basically relates to the way they died. The Torn were those killed by violence. 
these sin eaters tend to be angry and vengeful. The silent died from deprivation, like suffocation, starvation, and heartbreak. They tend to be hungry or needy. The prey died in the wild, such as from exposure, animal attacks, and drowning. These are the most inhuman of the sin eaters. The stricken died of disease, illness, or poison. They're very hardy in nature and tend to seek out challenges to beat. The forgotten died from random chance. They see the world as random and tend to gamble and take more chances. Moving on from threshold, each sin eater also has an archetype, which reflects their personal views on what happened to them and how they intend to deal with it. Advocate, they want to help the dead. Bone picker, they want the material comforts their powers allow them to gain. They also keep track of who owes them what. Gatekeeper, they see it as their duty to police the boundaries between life and death. Mourner, they're obsessed with the way they died and feed on the emotions of those in mourning. Necromancer, they use ghosts to gain occult lore and knowledge of the past. Pilgrim, they try to help people avoid the underworld. Reaper, they try to make the world a better place, which means they murder or haunt the guilty. All right, so with the background of the Sin Eater out of the way, there are some mechanics we need to look at. Psyche is the measure of the combined will of the Sin Eater and the Geist, as well as the strength of the bond between them. It can be increased by constant work with the dead, among other things. By the way, the higher the Psyche gets, the stronger the anchors tying them to the mortal world need to be. Plossum is what Sin Eaters use to fuel their powers. They can get it at Haunts, Cenotes, and Avernian Gates, which are detailed in the text. So getting and holding a decent amount of this is good, and not having any means the character can't use their powers. Synergy is the replacement for morality in this game, which makes sense considering the background. Synergy measures how well the Sin Eater and Geist work together. Obviously, the higher this is, the better the two work together. Keys are what the Sin Eater uses to unlock their manifestations. They start with two and can acquire more through gameplay. The keys are Elemental, Industrial, Passion, Phantasmal, Primeval, Stigmata, Stillness, and Stygian. Again, the text goes into great detail about what each of these are and how they apply to use for manifestations. Again, I recommend getting a copy of the book if you're interested in learning more. Manifestations are how Sin Eaters access their Geist's power. Each manifestation is rated 1 to 5. Boneyard, by bleeding plasm into the ground, they're granted influence over a large area. Cowl, the Sin Eater allows the Geist to merge with their physical body and changes the body in a way defined by the key used to unlock it. Curse, places a hex on another person. Marionette, allows the Sin Eater to control people, animals, or objects. Oracle, alters the Sin Eater's perceptions. Rage, a direct attack on another person by the Geist. Shroud, Plasm forms around the Sin Eater, forming a sort of armor. And Pit allows the Sin Eater to remove some aspect of the target. Ceremonies are the rituals Sin Eaters use to achieve specific effects. It's a merit that can be purchased, and there's a lot more covering ceremonies in the text. A Haunt is a place with a strong connection to the underworld. These are the types of places a Sin Eater can arf as Plasm or open an Avernian Gate. Needless to say, Haunt is also a merit that can be purchased. Mementos are items that carry a connection to death and act as a focal point of power. There are various types, and they are charms, vanitas, fetters, and death masks. Again, the book gets into much deeper detail than I have the time to do here. Okay, so by this point, listing antagonists is becoming my theme, so let's stay consistent. Ghosts, geists, the sacrosanct, abmortals, the wretched, the vacant, uh, Kerberi, and Chthonians are the various antagonists in this game, and they'll make the work very hard on the Sin Eater. Seven supplements have been released over the two editions of Geist, and the reviews were muted but fair, 
and while it didn't sell as well as hoped, it did sell well enough to get that second edition. The Chronicles of Darkness brought mummies back into the fold, along with all the other things that go bump in the night. Mummy the Curse, designed by C.A. Suleiman, Dean Shamshak, and Richard Thomas, was released on March 27, 2013. Unlike the previous books in the Chronicle of Darkness to this point, Mummy the Curse was originally released by Onyx Path Publishing, who ordered a second edition on September 15, 2021. The first edition was a book that was funded by a Kickstarter fund, which I referred to two weeks ago when I discussed the overall history of the World of Darkness. Crowdfunding was also used for the second edition. Now, in all of the other books in the Chronicles of Darkness line to this point, I've spent several minutes detailing all of the changes from World of Darkness to the Chronicles. In this case, there weren't a lot of changes. In fact, the only major changes were the setting changes, as they needed to update the mummy line to fit the Chronicles of Darkness. Otherwise, it plays pretty much exactly as it did in the World of Darkness. I get that this was a pretty short, deep dive, but since I covered all this ground last week, I didn't feel the need to cover it twice. Besides, we've still got three games to cover. Demon the Descent, developed by Rose Bailey and Matt McFarlane, was published by Onyx Path Publishing in 2014. Now, as you might remember, Demon also had a World of Darkness release, but one of the major differences between that one and this one is that the Unchained, Demons, are not the biblical demons as portrayed in The Fallen. This time around, they're technological monstrosities hiding from the grasp of the God Machine. All right. So, the characters in Demon the Descent are known as the Unchained, and while they were originally angels, much like in The Fallen, in this case, the angels that they once were were algorithms of the God Machine. They got free, or fell, depending on how you want to look at it, when they developed free will and self-awareness. Along the way, they became physical and sentient, and the God Machine wants to plug them back into the Matrix, as it were. In this version of the game, the angels the demons come from are created by the God Machine for four general purposes. Needless to say, they've taken form and gain abilities that are dedicated to those purposes. Those purposes remain even after they've fallen. The four purposes, called incarnations, are destroyer, guardian, messenger, and psychopomp. Needless to say, trying to dig up deeper definitions of them was nearly impossible, so I'll refer you back to the text for more of that. The characters also have four general agendas which they can choose to follow, which will shape their goals and give their new lives some purpose. They are inquisitors, who are information brokers and seekers, integrators, apologists to the god machine, saboteurs, they want to destroy their creator, tempters, these are hedonists, they just want to enjoy their newfound freedom. One thing I should have pointed out earlier is that the demon characters have really hideous and horrific appearances. Due to that, and to avoid the god machine finding them, they have to adopt what's called a cover. A cover is a human identity that's supposed to disguise them. It's more than just a simple disguise. Due to a shift in reality, this is a deep disguise. Think of it like going into deep cover as an operative. You've got an entirely new identity, with a job, maybe family, the whole nine yards. The antagonists of Demon the Descent are familiar to us, but I'll list them again to be thorough. Angels. Exiles, these are angels that have free will but didn't fall. They serve the god machine, but they aren't the unthinking types. Stigmatics, cryptibs, and cryptoflora, they come into contact with the god machine. Sleeper agents, the god machine has placed them on earth and programmed them to seek out the demons. Imperatives, minor servants of the god machine. Simulacra, simple-minded creatures created for one purpose. Echoes, ghosts that have access to certain angel abilities. Dalga, spider-like biomechanisms. And the clockwork servitors. These are created by the Dalga and serve them. 
Demon the Descent got decent reviews and sold fairly well. You might be able to find a copy at your local game shop, but you're more likely going to be looking for a used copy or a PDF. Beast the Primordial was released by Onyx Path Publishing in 2016. You might notice I didn't list the designers for this title. It's not because I don't want to, it's because that through 10 separate websites of searching, I was unable to identify them. So if you're one of the designers of this game, I apologize for not giving you the credit you deserve. Beast the Primordial was a slightly different release for Onyx Path. It was the first, and to this point only, title in the Chronicles of Darkness designed to cross over with all of the other titles in the line. The reason for this is that the mythology of the beasts in this game means that they consider all other types of supernatural beings as kin. In this game, the characters are one of the begotten, which are humans with a monster's soul. And for the record, these aren't ordinary monsters. These are monsters of legend. We're talking titans, dragons, griffins, kraken, and other legendary monsters. Basically, the character wasn't aware they had a monster's soul. For the longest time, they were having nightmares about the legendary monster contained within them. After fighting it for a long time, they finally decided to embrace it, and it gives them power. And it explains why the character just never seemed to fit in. Family is one of the main themes in the game. Begotten organized themselves into five families that draw on heritage from the Dark Mother. They are Anakim, Nightmares of Helplessness and Hopelessness. Eshmai, Nightmares of the Darkness. Iguma, Nightmares of the Other. Makara, Nightmares of the Depths. Namtaru, Nightmares of Revulsion. Talasi, Nightmares of Confinement. Ugalu, Nightmares of Exposure. Yes, I know there's more than five families. Go figure. Oh, and I suppose I should explain who the Dark Mother is. In short, the Dark Mother is the mythological mother of monsters. Call her Lilith, Echnida, Tiamat, or whatever. If there's a legendary mother of a monster, she is the Dark Mother. So, as they go through their lives, begotten have certain needs they need to fulfill. These are called hungers. They happen to correspond to the actions and behaviors of the legendary monsters. We're talking about things like a dragon's hoard of treasure. And for the record, this isn't necessarily a physical hunger. It's a metaphorical one. An example I got from the White Wolf Wiki is that a begotten with a hunger for ruin could feed by destroying the wealthy's sense of security. As far as antagonists go in this game, there's really only one. Heroes. These are mortals with low integrity who become obsessed with being the one who kills a beast. So that can be a handful in and of itself without having any others. Eleven different supplements have been released for Beast to this point, and the core book is shown to still be in print. Reviews have been mixed. I've seen five-star reviews and one-star reviews. So this is a game that I would say you definitely need to try and judge for yourself. Deviant the Renegades is the most recent new book in the Chronicles of Darkness line. Published by Onyx Path Publishing through a Kickstarter in October of 2019, Deviant has the players taking on the parts of the Remade. The Remade are humans who have been transformed into something else through human action. In other words, humans took actions to change them. It might have been a spell, or a surgery, or an experiment. Whatever it was, it changed them forever. The creators of the remade are known as progenitors, and they definitely have human faces. They decided that what they saw lurking in the shadows of the world had the kind of powers and abilities that they wanted for themselves, thus the testing on human subjects. The players in your game are playing renegades because they've broken away from their creators and set out on their own. Of course, their creators would like nothing more than to have them back. Every deviant has an origin, which describes the nature of their divergence, or change, and how they feel about it. There are five basic origins outlined in the book. Autorgic. These are deviants who sought out the divergence. 
Epimorph, they volunteered, either out of necessity or because they were lied to. Exomorph, they were kidnapped or threatened. Genotypal, these were born into it. Pathological, they were made unintentionally, basically by happenstance. Deviants also fall into a clade, which are very rough categorizations of process and variation type. They are syphilist, these are psychics, so their divergence unlocked the powers of the mind. Chimeric, these are hybrids, they were merged with another life form. Coactive, they're fused with intangible energies. Invasive, cyborgs, they were implanted with foreign inanimate matter. Mutant, they're referred to as grotesques. Their bodies rejected the divergence, but they were changed anyway. Once the deviant gets up and running, they've got some powers. To be more specific, they've got two types of powers, adaptations and variations. Adaptations, with one exception, are based on the deviant's clade. They are stubborn resolve, it's a universal adaptation. Focus and iron will, cephalist. Adrenaline surge and untamed, chimeric. Consume and living conduit, coactive. Overclock and redundancy, invasive. Forced growth and unpredictability, mutant. Variations are also based on the clade, but they're tailored to the individual. In game terms, the progenitor was looking for something specific when they did what they did, and therefore the deviant will have some sort of special power specific to them. Again, the text spells these out a lot better than I ever could with what the space I've got left. And also, once again, I was unable to get the names of the designers of Deviant from any other sources of mine, and the number of reviews I was able to read really wasn't enough to form a solid report. What I will say about the reviews that I did read is that players either really love it or they really hate it. There's not really a gray area or a middle ground here. So again, I'll suggest you check it out for yourself and see what you think. And with that, we come to the end of today's very long tour. Next week, we change topics, and I'll dive into Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition, as my inbox has been stuffed with requests to finally get to this topic. Your patience will be rewarded next week. If you're looking for more gaming podcasts to enjoy, I would recommend strongly our other show, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. We build an entire campaign from scratch, and since my home group plays what we've created, I provide feedback on how it went. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for your license-free, royalty-free music for your next project. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Bad GM Productions. Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Twitch, Bad GM. Email us, Bad GM Productions at gmail.com. So next week, we dive into the third edition of Dungeons & Dragons, but that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and your role-playing history. <laughs>